All right, all right, all right. Lighthouse, if you could make your way to your seat, that would be fantastic. What's up, Bennett? How you doing, man? You didn't think I'd call you out, did you, huh? <laughs> well, I'm glad you're all here today. As you're moving back to your seats, let me give you a quick announcement um, after my friend George did such a great job. But uh, on uh, February 17th, which is what, a week from Friday, I believe? February 17th, we have our midwinter summer jam. And uh, the last time we did this was right before COVID. I think it was the reason COVID came in. But it was, it was a phenomenal time. Uh, uh, we had Chuck Rustin Holtz, an amazing band here, playing like uh, blues and stuff like that. And we're doing like the best of the 80s and more blues and like the Blues Brothers are supposed to show up. And it, it, was, it was one of my funnest, funnest times that year which isn't a hard thing when you think of COVID. But um, it was a phenomenal time together. And here was one of my favorite things about that. We really bill it as one of the kind of circle of seven events. Those people that you've been in, you know, praying over and praying for and wanted to invite to church. This is one of those things to invite them to. Okay, because like there's no offering, there's food at this, there's no, you know, there's not like this big Bible teaching time. It's music. It's really, really, really good music. And it's a great time and a great opportunity to invite people. And, uh, and, and I love it. And I'm going to tell you right now, probably two-thirds of the people that were there uh, at the midwinter summer jam last time, I did not know. I didn't know who they were. And so uh, it was just that many new people who were here and were part of that. And so that, it's an epic opportunity to invite people who you want to invite to a non-threatening, you know, event. So that's on the 17th. Tickets are... Uh, $10 each, and that helps to cover the food. That, honestly, we lose money on this, okay? So if you want to give towards something, this would be a great event to give toward. But it's 10 bucks. It includes the food. It includes the music, all right? Um, if you have a large family and you're like, oh, man, 10 bucks per person is going to crush us, we cap it at, is it $40, Elaine? Yes, $40. We cap it. So if you've got a family of five or six or seven, you're making out, okay? We do not include extended family, okay? This is my Uncle Dave, okay? It's like they have to be blood relatives of yours and hopefully live in your house or buy your house. So there you go. Midwinter Summer Jam, February 17th, the week from Friday. Going to be a fantastic time, okay? Whew. Well, I don't know about you. But I like, after I mow the lawn, it is one of the few times that I really, really like a nice, cool glass of water. And you probably know this. You're, you're all smart people, okay? We probably all know this, that food and water are essential to life right? I mean, you know that. You're smart. And, and I did a little bit of research, and I found out that if you, you know, if you didn't have any food, I, I, I actually Googled it. It was like, how long could I live without food, right? And, and you can live on water alone. If you just have water, most of us could live. You, take a guess. Just shout out a guess how long you think we could live. 
eight days I heard, and I, then I heard a whole bunch of gobbledygook. So, you can live on water alone for two to three months. Two to three months. Some of us can probably live longer. I know that I can probably last longer than that, all right? I went to the doctor this week, and he was like, you really need to lose weight. And I said, you really need to shut up, okay? So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, then I looked it up. How long could you live without water? And it's interesting because we don't really understand how vital water is to many of the processes that take place inside of the human body, okay? I mean, I looked it up, and it was like, you need, you need water to help lubricate the joints and your spine. You need water to help keep your pH in balance. You need water to help regulate, uh, you know, the heat inside of your body. Uh, you, need, you need water to help transport toxins out of the body and so much more. Water is indispensable to life. And you cannot live but two to three days without water. That's good stuff right there. Thus, we can look and we can make not an assumption, but an assertion that no water equals no life. Think about that. Two to three months without food. Two to three months without food. It, it wouldn't be a good thing. Trust me, I'm not saying that you would be a happy camper after a month or a month and a half. Your body begins to adjust. Your body has, you know, begins to eat muscle mass and things like that. It's not a glorious thing, but you would last for two to three months. You would last about three days without water. No water, no life. Say that with me. No water, no life. I love water. I do, not just because it keeps my body going, but I grew up in San Diego, so I love the beach. I love going to the beach. I love to hear the water lapping on the shore. I remember um, the, back in 2017 when we went to Egypt, and for some reason, uh, I remember Megan and Trevor Loftus were, were on vacation, obviously before they had kids. And um, they, were, they were, I think, in Hawaii or something like that. And we could literally hear the water lapping on the shore through the phone call with them. And it was like, ah, oh, man. And I don't know if you know this, but it, how many of you have, like, um, Amazon? What's her name? Uh, Alexa. How many of you have Amazon Alexa? You use it. Okay, I do. I do have it. And on there, they have this thing called ambient noise. Right, and so you can get gray noise, and and you know you get like air and wind. My one of my all-time favorites is I just say, Alexa, ambient noise. And she's like, bling. What do you want? And I'm like, uh, I ocean. And then you just hear waves. I love I love the sound of water, except in my basement. I don't like that sound. You're probably with me, okay? I love water. In the Bible, water plays a significant role. 
There is so much about water in the scriptures. I can give you just a few examples. In the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, in, the very, in Genesis chapter 1, I believe it's in verse 2, it says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the expanse, hovered over the water before God had created anything else. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the water. I believe it was last week we talked about we talked about Moses and the Israelites. They walked through the water, okay? That God used the water to bring victory for the for the Israelites over the Egyptians. David's friends, some of his mighty men, the scripture call them the mighty men. David's mighty men. A few of David's mighty men, David said, oh man, I am so thirsty. I wish that I could get some water. And they're like, yeah, we, we can get you water. Said, no, no, no. There's a specific place. There's this, there's this well right by a specific gate outside of Bethlehem. And it's like, well, that's a lot. I mean, come on. I mean, the water in Jerusalem? No, no, no. I want the water from that well, that well. Outside of that gate, outside of Bethlehem. And guess what his mighty men did? His mighty men went, and they snuck through the Philistine lines, and they went all the way to that well outside of that gate, outside of Bethlehem, and they got him that water. Jesus, it says that Jesus walked on what? Jesus walked on water. Right? I mean, there's so many differences, or excuse me, so many references to water in the scriptures. But one of the significant things that involves water and scripture and us as followers of Jesus takes place in something like this and it's baptism. And we talk about baptism, but we haven't really talked about baptism. In fact, I was talking to somebody earlier this morning, and I just said, you know what? In all the years I've been here, this is my eighth year here at Lighthouse, I've never done a message on baptism. And you all know, if you've been here for any amount of time, one of the most important things to us here at Lighthouse is context. Okay, understanding context, the context. And, And you would agree with me, right? If you hear somebody tell you a story about something bad that happens, our, our first response should be there's always how many sides? Two sides to what? The story. There's always two. Why? Because there's context. You're only getting one side of the story. The other side helps to give us context, and truth is found somewhere usually in the middle, right? And the same is true about Bible. To understand the context of Scripture helps us to apply Scripture that wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It was written, you know, uh, thousands of years ago in languages, three different languages that most of us here don't understand. And so, to understand what the Bible is saying to us today, we have to understand the context that it was written in, to whom it was written the situation, the genre that it was written in. Most of you are familiar, if you, came, if you come to Lighthouse for any amount of time, that almost a third of all of the Bible is poetry. Poetry. So understanding context is critical. And in the 
eight years in this, I'm in my eighth year, I, I've never actually talked about baptism. So I'm so, I'm so geeked to talk about baptism today. Because I think a lot of us, you know, we're like, oh, I, I know about baptism, but do we know the context? Do we know what it means, what baptism actually is, and how it's referenced and what it meant in the Old Testament? This could be a great day. It's going to be a great day. Look at me, smile, smile really big, and say, this is going to be a great day. Father, this is a great day. If I just shut up right now and didn't say another word, it's already a great day because you're here. And we are so thankful for your love for us. And Lord, as we talk about baptism and what baptism means, I pray, God, that you would help us come to grips with what it means to us today. What baptism means to us today based on the context of what it meant, not just when, when you walked on earth, Jesus, but in the Old Testament, when our forefathers and foremothers walked on earth. Speak to us, God. Encourage us, I pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Well, let's, let's go to the Old Testament. Let's get a better understanding of, of what baptism is by starting where we should, in the old book, in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the exact Scriptures that Jesus himself referenced when he was talking, when he would give messages, when he referenced Isaiah and Deuteronomy and the Psalms, because those Scriptures were Jesus' Scriptures. Okay, And so we look back into the Old Testament and we understand that baptism, what we have as baptism and what they would do in Jesus' time was a form of ritual cleansing by immersion. A person would become what was known as unclean. And there were a lot of different ways to become unclean. Okay, uh, Some of them included just simply touching blood. Just touching blood. You moms out there, think about how many times that, you know, your, your kids fell and scraped an arm, you know, or, you know, popped a bone out or whatever, and, and there was blood there, and you're like wiping it up. That would make you unclean. That would make you unclean. By cleaning up you, you were unclean, okay? Or touching a dead body. I don't know who does that other than a mortician, but touching a dead body would make you unclean. Unusual bodily oozes and discharges, um, skin diseases, giving birth would make a woman unclean, all of it, and there were so many more that would make a person unclean. Now, you and I look at that, and we go, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, you know, I can clean that, you know, scrape up and, okay, big deal, I'm unclean. But here's the thing that, that most of us don't recognize is that when we become unclean, when a person was unclean in, in, Israelite, in the Israelite community, in the community that Jesus grew up and lived in and taught in, if a person was unclean, they could not participate in temple activities. They could not participate in the synagogue. And I've shared this before that some of us look at it and go, wow, then, so you're saying I couldn't go to church? What were those again, Doug? Just write those down real quick, right? Okay. But to them, the temple or the synagogue was the center of activity. 
to not be out, to, to not be allowed to be part of synagogue activities meant that you were not only separated from God, but you were separated from other people. You, you maybe have heard this before, okay? People who had a skin disease, they were unclean. So if you had leprosy, you would have to wear a sign and walk down the street, and what did you shout? Unclean, unclean, unclean. Because an unclean person, if an unclean person touched you, if, if Sean was cleaning up Tori's scrape and got a little bit of blood on her finger and didn't do the ritual purification in order to, to make her clean again, and if Sean touched me in that time frame, she would make me unclean. And so people would walk around with a sign and they'd shout, unclean, unclean. That way people could get away from them. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be terrible? Like people see you walking down the sidewalk and they just start to move to the other side. They just try to get away from you. They don't want to be around you because they don't want to get what you got. Made them unclean. And so because this person was unclean, they were not connected to God, or at least this was the thought line of the Israelite. They were not connected to God, and they couldn't be connected to each other. They were unclean. And so one of the ways that they were made clean again was for them to go through a ritual or ceremony to purify themselves once again. And so they would immerse themselves in water that would make them clean. But they couldn't just go and immerse themselves in any water. They couldn't just go in their bathtub and do that. They would go to specific places that would have what would be known as living water, okay? Living water or moving water. It had to be moving, okay? And you could do this in a number of different places. You could go to, you could go to a stream, Okay, you, you could go to uh, a lake, you could go to a spring, you could go to a river. This is the picture of um, the River Jordan that, that our group went to when we were in Israel. And I took this picture and you can see absolutely perfectly moving, right? That is living water, that's moving water. We actually did a baptism in that water in the River Jordan, okay? You could do it that way, or you could, you could go and you could dip in a specific pool um, that was called a mikvah, a mikvah, say mikvah, a mikvah. That mikvah is a specific pool, okay, and, uh, and it had water running into it, all right, and uh, I actually took this picture uh, up where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, and this is, this is a mikvah, mikvah, and the water would be flowing into it. There, it had to have continual movement. And there are times when you would see a mikvah, and there would be a hole from kind of an upper mikvah, so that the water would be kind of running down, right? So that it's always moving. The water is alive. If you're smart, you want to be at the top mikvah, not at the bottom. 
bottom mikvah because you're eating everybody else's dirty water. So anyway, that's what you would do. You would go to a mikvah and you would dip yourself, you would immerse yourself in that ceremonially and you would become clean. That's how you became clean. Those, those uh, whether it was a river, a spring, or a pool like we just saw, a mikvah, okay? It had to be moving to account. So this person, when they would dip themselves in the water, was getting rid of the uncleanness that they had been exposed to and were now pure before God. By the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, there are a number of reasons why a person would immerse themselves. There are a number of reasons why people would get baptized. Uh, the most readily available and the easiest one to understand for those of us who have read scripture, we understand that um, it was John's baptism. John's baptism, right? We've read about that. John's baptism is a reference to John the Baptist, okay? And, and he shows up on the scene as the forerunner of Jesus, and he's baptizing people. And, and if you've read scriptures, then you know that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, it's a baptism of purification. It was the Israelites getting themselves prepared and ready for the Messiah that John was talking about. It was purifying themselves so that they were ready. They repented of the past and were taking on a pure life. It's what Paul talked about in the book of Acts. When Paul was, was talking to a group of people, I believe it was in Ephesus, and he was talking to them and he said, hey, you know, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what? What do you do? He said, what baptism have you had? He said, uh, Paul said, John's baptism, and they, I'm sorry, they responded, we've had John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. We understand that. That is John's baptism. Now, according to Dr. Uh, James Martin in his book, Exploring Bible Times, there were a number of other reasons that people would get baptized. Sometimes they'd get uh, baptized because uh, they had a doctrinal agreement with a rabbi in their area. There's also a baptism which was a consecration of, uh, into political or religious authority, which when Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, I know that some of us look and go, why would Jesus need to get baptized? Why would Jesus need to get baptized? And this is a fantastic discussion that I don't have time for. That it would, Jesus' baptism was actually the recognition that he now has the authority to move forward, not only as a rabbi, but as the Messiah. He always was the Messiah. But this is the public opportunity for Jesus to say, I am. And I don't have time to talk about that. It's fascinating. But one of the other baptisms that, that Martin talks about is a baptism as a sign of submission to the authority of a specific rabbi. It was a sign of submission to the authority of a specific rabbi rabbi. In the time of Jesus, people believed that rabbis spoke for God. 
rabbis spoke for God. And in the same way today that there are a lot of Jesus followers who belong to different churches because maybe they like the way that pastor speaks or, or, or maybe they agree doctrinally with that church, in that same way, there were different rabbis who had different interpretations of Scripture, and so people would follow different rabbis. They didn't all have the same interpretation, whether you're talking about Hillel, Shammai, Gamaliel. There were different interpretations of the Hebrew Scriptures, and so these disciples would be known by the rabbi that they followed. Are you with me? Okay. And so the interesting thing was, in the same ways today, we're identified by a denomination, okay? Maybe it's a, you know, Baptist or Methodist or Reformed or Christian Reformed, or maybe you're not part of a denomination, that's fine. In that same way, people were identified with a particular rabbi. So if a person was baptized in the name of that rabbi, it showed their submission to the teachings of that rabbi. Now, with that in mind, this is where it begins to come full circle. That to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to surrender to Jesus. It's to surrender to him and to submit oneself to the Messiah who defeated sin and death and is the savior of our souls. His sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection give us hope. And one of the clearest pictures we have of baptism taking place in this way is found in Acts chapter 2. When Peter does the very first sermon, post-resurrection, post-ascension, after Jesus rose again, and he walked for 40 days around on the earth, and he proved that he was alive. He ate with them. Thomas touched his hand, stuck, you know, stuck his hand in Jesus' side. Jesus was alive. And then he went to heaven. And then the Holy Spirit came and blew the doors off. We spent a year talking about this, okay? The Holy Spirit came, and Peter gives his first sermon. And Scripture says that people were cut to the heart in Acts chapter 2. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard the message of this Messiah, this one who died for them. Because God loves them so much, he was willing to do the unthinkable that he would come from heaven to earth, would die a horrific death on a cross in my place, in your place, in their place. He would take their sin and shame because they couldn't handle it. They couldn't bear it. Every single one of us, and I know this is really unpopular right now, but without Jesus, you and I are convicted of our sin and the penalty is hell. Nobody wants to talk about that, but that's the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And Jesus came because God loves you so much that he never wants you to spend a single millisecond in hell. And that's why he came. Amen. And Peter talked about that. And the people were blown away. And they're like, what do we do? What's our response? What do we have to do? And Peter replied, in chapter 2, verse 38, 
repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Interestingly, Paul dealt with this as well, although he dealt with it in a unique way with the Corinthian church. After the church kind of, that seed began to sprout, and the church that grew in Jerusalem began to spread its wings and fulfill the words that Jesus talked about in Acts chapter 1, right? That, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the end of it, boy, it's starting to blow. This is happening. It's happening now. Except just like what happens, men mess things up. Humanity messes things up, right? And this great, this good news, this great news of Jesus, began, you know, people began to take sides. People began to divide over stupid things. And people began to, to believe that the person who baptized them was more important than the name they were baptized in. And Paul addresses this. Because the church in Corinth lost its focus and began claiming privilege in the name of the person who baptized them, Apollos, Paul. Scripture says Cephas, which is another name for Peter, okay? And they began to look at it and go, well, I was baptized in the name of Paul. And it was a big deal. I was baptized in the name of Apollos. And they're arguing over that. I guarantee you nobody in the history of my life has ever said, well, I was baptized by Doug Swink. Nobody's ever said that proudly, okay? <laughs> but they're arguing about this. And Paul, in his writing to the Corinthian church, is like, enough, enough. And he writes this. He says, let me see if I can get us going there. My brothers and sisters, this is Paul writing, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Do you get the argument that's going on there? Now Paul lowers the boom. I love what he says next. He says, is Christ divided? Is Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And I imagine that when the Corinthian church read this letter, there was a number of, a number of them who felt like third graders right? Or me after I hit the curb in my car the other day who just went, oh no, here it comes. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I guarantee you in a moment when we have a baptism here, I am not going to say, I baptize you now in the name of Doug Swink because lightning bolts, I'm pretty sure will come from heaven. All right? Doesn't happen. Paul's not making a ridiculous statement here. He's helping to bring their focus back to the truth of what is most important. And it's not the messenger, it's the message. God loves you.
And I failed to say this in the beginning, but if you haven't heard anything I've said so far, which is awful hard because I've been yelling a lot, <laughs> but if you haven't heard a single thing I've said so far, I hope you hear this, that God loves you. Amen. This is what we're talking about. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a proclamation of the salvation that we have because of God's love for us. Because those people recognized Peter and Paul and Apollos as authorities, they recognized them as rabbis, and they would have seen them as men with authority. And as such, they would have seen themselves as baptized in the name of Peter or in the name of Paul, or baptized in the name of Apollos, and they would have said, I am under their authority. Paul's response was to assert that there is only one authority under which we are baptized. And he says this, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you. That's kind of harsh, right? But it's kind of Paul's way of going, you children... When are you going to learn? Paul, Peter, Apollos, they don't, mess, they don't matter except for the message that they're bringing. And because of that, man, am I glad I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Paul proclaims, that Jesus is the teacher and the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only one who can escort us to the throne of the Father is the Son, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, our loyalty is not to the person who baptized us. Okay? In a moment when we see an example of what baptism is, this person's loyalty is not to me. Man, I hope not. The loyalty is not to the person who baptized us. It's not to Peter or Paul or Doug. It's not to a denomination. Our loyalty is not to the Wesleyan church or the Baptist church or the Reformed church or the Lutheran church or any other church. Our only loyalty is to the one whose name we are baptized in, and that is Jesus Christ. That's where our loyalty lies. And as a result, the symbolism of baptism is a person's complete loyalty to Jesus. Complete surrender to him and submission to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives us a great view of this symbolism in the book of Romans when he writes, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if we were to stop right that, there, that would be depressing, wouldn't it? It's like we're baptized into Jesus' death. Not many of us are going to go, woohoo, right? But it's the next verse that crushes it for us. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into, the, into death in order that, in order that, 
in order that. Those three words are critical to our understanding that we weren't just baptized into the death of Jesus, but we were baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so we have the picture that Paul paints for us. When a person is baptized, they are buried in death. When they go below the water, they take the form of a dead person. But when they come out of the water, they come out alive. Alive as Jesus walking out of the tomb. Alive as Jesus eating bread and dinner with his disciples. Alive as Jesus when he ascended into heaven. We may die on this earth, but we will rise again because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what baptism is. It is a proclamation of our loyalty to our Savior. It is our surrender to our Messiah. It is submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it is a confession of the new life that I have and the life that I will live.